Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Today on MERS Monday, elections attorney Mark Brewer and retired political action executive Bob LeBrant take a look at ongoing headlines surrounding Michigan's Independent Redistricting Commission. After 13 legislative districts were ruled as racially gerrymandered, does the commission need to tidy up its operations? Also, can the districts be redrawn without impacting others? William Lawrence, coordinator of the Rent is Too Damn High Coalition in Michigan, calls for the state to address both tenant rights and housing supply needs at the same time. The problem with our model of affordable housing provision is that it's all about throwing gobs of money at private developers and it doesn't change the situation for renters, which is that renters get the short end of the stick every time. Additionally, Policy Director Jennifer Peacock of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice explains how for most of 2024, local governments will be preparing for multiple changes to the state's juvenile justice system, which she says aims to prevent an over-reliance on detention following youth's offenses. Now here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, the boss John Rurink, and administrative reporter Andrew Miniger. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. The new year is now in full swing in terms of political news coverage, and one of the top and ongoing stories of early 2024 deals with the Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. Near the end of last year, a federal three-judge panel ruled that 13 legislative districts drawn by the commission, six state Senate, and seven House districts based in Detroit, were racially gerrymandered, violating the U.S. Constitution and the Federal Voting Rights Act. As of this past Friday, legal representatives from both the Detroit voter plaintiffs and the commission must come together to select three potential special masters who will be a nonpartisan map drawing expert responsible for drawing a parallel set of new House and Senate maps alongside the commission. Today, we are joined by elections attorney Mark Brewer, who's not currently representing anyone in this redistricting case. Uh, Is that still true, Mark? That's true. And we also are joined by retired political action executive Bob LeBrand. Hey, Bob, how are you? Very good. Who is enjoying Florida sunshine while we're on this call here today. Mark, I know, although you do not currently have any clients in the case involving the Detroit voters, you were watching Friday's continued hearing with the federal three-judge panel. Uh, What are some of your main takeaways as of this current moment? Yeah, I was there as an observer. I don't have a client currently in this matter. Um, And so I'm very interested in this. I've been doing this uh, since 1983. I've been involved in redistricting every cycle in one capacity or another, lawyer, witness, plan drafter. Etc. I, I think it's really important people understand these districts can be corrected per the court's order without disturbing any other districts. You can uh, correct the problem that the court found within the existing geography of these districts. And that is what, what frankly should be done in compliance with the Michigan Constitution and of course federal law and without disturbing other districts. You know, the other districts uh, were not found to be unconstitutional. Many, almost all of them were not challenged. There's no reason to disturb the other districts. So I think the commission uh, can frankly fairly quickly uh, correct the problems identified by the federal court 
and we can move on and get ready for the 2024 elections. Uh, if I could, Mark, uh, as I was taking a look here at these maps, and we'll get to Bob here in a second, but District 1 in the Senate and District 1 in the House, as I'm looking at these maps, they seem to be on their own like little island in that if you just, you know, you can erase the other districts, you know, that need to be redrawn, but one would still kind of stick out like a peninsula and that you would need to disturb the Dearborn one or a neighboring district in order to change that configuration, if I'm making any sense here. Are you seeing this a different way? Because to me, it looks like both District 1 in the House and the Senate are peninsulas. No, I mean, I look at the map very differently. The, the districts are all contiguous to each other. They're not contiguous to each, but they're contiguous to each other through other districts. So I think it's it's very possible to simply shift population uh, within the existing geography, Kyle, and again, correct the problem. Well, let me interject. Uh, I, I agree with Mark. I, I think you can do this without, uh, you know, getting involved in, well, we're not going to go to the UP with this map. <laughs> you know, you can correct the, those seven state house districts and you can correct those six uh, state senate districts. I would be surprised, however, if the... Uh, if, if, if the court basically orders Senate elections early in, in 2024, I, I don't think that's likely to happen. And as a result, I think that this panel is going to want to get the job done as it relates to the state house, given the very, you know, these very strict time constraints. You know, one of the things I looked at is, is some of the filings, you know, that, that have been uh, uh, filed with the panel and I, I, the plaintiffs. Uh, have, have already come up, I think, with a map, and uh, I think the uh, their kind of expert uh, said he was able to do that in four hours, uh, one afternoon. So uh, I, I would agree with Mark that this is, you know, this isn't creating the atom bomb. They can, they, although it may have some implications, perhaps of the atom bomb, but it, it, it's it, it, it can be done in, in rather short order. I'd like to interject one thing that I was concerned about this weekend when I, I took a look at this in anticipation of our meeting today. And, and that was uh, the commission itself, uh, of course, uh, got started uh, in, in November of 2020. You know, the Constitution mandated that. And we were in the midst of a, of a you know, a COVID pandemic. And uh, all of a sudden, I think the commission got fast and loose with the rules uh, under the Open Meetings Act. And uh, once uh, we retreated from some of the uh, executive orders and some of the legislation, I, I think that uh, this idea that the commission can basically meet in, in Zoom meetings uh, is contrary to the Open Meetings Act. And in fact, uh, if you take a look at the uh, rules and procedures, that were adopted by the commission itself. It says that you got we got to you know we we are, are required to comply with the Open Meetings Act, and that brings up the issue of you know can commission on its own basically violate the Open Meetings Act and come up with a five-hour posting instead of an eighteen-hour posting? So those are some things that uh, I, I think have become you know fairly sloppy. In, in the administration of the commission that needs to be corrected. Real quick, I just had one more comment here on the whole re, the whole districts. Um, district 13 in the House is an important district because it is vacant right now because Lori Stone is now the mayor of Warren. 
It is sandwiched in between District 14 and 12 and is basically drawn the exact same way in that it starts in the suburbs and then just takes a little piece of Detroit and arguably could be ruled just as discriminatory as 12 and 14. Um, Mark, do you how do you how can you redraw 12 and 14 without touching 13? Well, first of all, Kyle, 13 was challenged and the court rejected that challenge last fall. Okay. Oh, that district has been found, you know, again, the challenge was rejected. It's constitutional. Again, all these districts are contiguous that you can move territory between them without disturbing 13 or any other district. But that's you know where we are. The plaintiffs attempted to challenge 13, it got rejected. Uh, and that district, um, you know, the, the special elections going forward, the court has not enjoined it. The court shouldn't enjoin the special election in 13. Um, and their other districts can and should be corrected without disturbing 13 or any of the other districts. I'm curious, you two, if, if, if you had a chance to write a corrective amendment to address the whole redistricting commission, what would you include in it right off the top of your head? I, I definitely feel that... Uh... The legislature needs to do a uh, constitutional cleanup amendment for the uh, commission, and and hopefully it can draw bipartisan support and they can get a two-thirds vote so that we don't need to go through the exercise of some sort of uh, massive petition drive. But if I were king for the day, and uh, I think we've got to do a couple of things. One is the pay. Uh, I, I think it's 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 a scandal that these people were paid all this money, you know, what was it, $55,000 a year in, in 2022 and 2023 uh, for essentially doing nothing. And one of the things that I'm concerned about looking ahead is if we take care of the House and the Senate's, you know, the, the Senate plan, it, it remains kind of on hold. Does the commission see this as license to, you know, not adopt something until such time as is sometime perhaps in 2025 uh, and, and keep, you know, drawing their $55,000 annual salary. It's just crazy. Uh, so I would, I guess I would suggest we, we think about per diem. And, and then I, I also think that the, the, the pandemic is over and we, we need to get back to normal order here and, and have people meet uh, in person and, uh, uh, I, I think one of the problems because of the pandemic is that these people never really bond, you know, like, like a commission ought to. And uh, I, I have another concern that uh, this, this experiment, the noble as it was, that we can just basically do a random draw and the, the 13 people are somehow competent to do this, you know, maybe stretching it a bit. So those are those would be some things that I would think that a constitutional cleanup amendment ought to take a look at. Do you have anything you'd you'd add, Mark? Yeah, I would focus on the criteria. I don't think there's enough attention been paid to partisan fairness. This was put on the ballot and was a reaction to the gerrymandering of the last thirty years. There's no question about it. And now I think the point, that's one of the reasons the voters voted for it. The commission got to partisan fairness very late in the process. And the maps, while they are much fairer than the maps we've had in the last 30 years, are not as fair as they could be. So I think more attention needs to be paid to an enhanced um, consideration of partisan fairness as their maps are drawn. 
I'm thinking about what Bob said about the payment that you receive for being a commissioner. You saw at a meeting last week that Juanita Curry, one of the commissioners, called for a lift in pay to go back to how much they were being compensated when they were in the heat of the map drawing. Now, uh, I, I think, and I'm going to get a bit wonky with my question here. One thing that I thought was almost a bit surprising that it was Juanita Curry to make that motion is that the last commission meeting that I personally covered, you had saw her over Zoom get up from her computer, walk away, go into another room. The camera is watching an empty room. She comes back in with a coat and a purse and you see her walk to her car all while the meeting is happening. And, and I think a question is, it's just when it comes to the communications of the commission, the accountability, uh, where is where is the shame, I have to ask? Because it seems that being ruled as having racially gerrymandered districts, that seems like something that you would have a lot of, uh, a lot of sentiment about. I, I'm concerned that uh, with some commissioners, we've already had, you know, filings of complaints about, you know, conflicts of interest. I mean, we had one commissioner who basically uh, got side jobs with groups that basically, you know, one of their missions in life was to uh, uh, try to influence the, the commission on, uh, on uh, redistricting. And uh, I think if you're applying for a job with, with one group that somehow wants to get the Bangladesh people uh you know, in, in, in a house district or uh, another group uh, that had another motive as it related to redistricting and, and get paid what seemed to be a fairly good amount of money, that uh, that's an inherent conflict. And if you were employed as the deputy executive director of such a, a group, uh, you wouldn't have ever gotten picked in the first place, uh, probably, to, to serve on the commission. So, you know, once somebody, you know, with an amazing amount of luck gets gets chosen to serve on the commission, you know, I think there needs to be some higher ethical standards. Mark, do you have any thoughts on this? Look, I'll just I'll just add, I think, you know, whatever the defects are, and maybe some of them are structural, maybe some of them have to do with the existing people. The commission approach is far better than what we had the last 30 years. Partisan actors, the legislature, the governors should not be drawing these maps. Commissions have worked very well in other states, Arizona, California, and other states. And I think once we work out some of the kinks here, there are some unique aspects to our commission that aren't found in other commissions. Once you work those out, I think this is the model going forward. These maps are much fairer uh, and better overall than anything we've seen in Michigan historically. So I just don't want the baby to be thrown out with the bathwater here. The commission approach is a sound one. Maybe we need to do some tinkering, but I think it's an approach we need to keep. Andy Miniger here. I saw you at the in the court there, Mark, on uh, Friday. That was an interesting, interesting hearing. But uh, it was it was interesting that the commission has decided to uh, appeal this to the Supreme Court. And I'm wondering. I, I know uh, you guys have some similar things that are possibly coming up to the Supreme Court, but. What are your thoughts about whether or not this gets actually picked up and what the outcome do you think uh, they're looking for? Well, I'm not going to get into the prediction business. They do have a right, the commission, to a direct appeal to the United States Supreme Court, even though it's 
it's a direct appeal. They have a right to, in essence, the court handles these on a discretionary uh, basis. Uh, so they've exercised their right, as the judges on Friday recognized. They have a right to appeal. There are some unique aspects to this case in terms of the record and the way the court handled it. And we'll just have to see what the Supreme Court does. I think a, a piece of that, Andy, though, is that the commission is also asking for a stay, as I understood it from what they said on Friday, which means they're going to ask the Supreme Court, while it considers whether to take the case, to put the entire decision on hold. Now, if, if the Supreme Court does that, we won't be changing these districts at all uh, for the 2024 election. So that an interesting aspect of that, that I think that's worth watching, apart from whether the, the court takes the case or not. Bob, do you think they should have even bothered to appeal this decision? No. I, first of all, I've already spent $5 million in, in legal fees. And, and frankly, this, was, this wasn't a close call for these judges. I mean, it was a 3-0 decision. And, and, and frankly, I, I don't know what the basis of an appeal is. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court is unlikely to, to grant cert here and hear this particular case. So I'll go back to the, the one thing that I mentioned earlier. Here we had a meeting, you know, on the 4th of January, you know, done by Zoom. OK, and uh, clearly that meeting was held in violation of the Open Meetings Act. And so I, I think that uh, their eight to one vote to, uh, you know, seek appeal of this it needs to be revisited. And, and they need to basically get in person and and see if they can muster, you know, the, the necessary votes to actually seek an appeal. Because right now, I, I think that 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 meeting, uh, frankly, should be found null and void because it violated the Open Meetings Act. Before we got, let you guys go, I want to ask you about uh, your efforts. Uh, Bob, you were the litigant, and I believe, Mark, you were the attorney, and Michigan's filing on the uh, 14th Amendment Section 3 challenge to Trump's candidacy on the state primary ballot. Friday, the Supreme Court said they're going to take up the Colorado decision. Uh, I guess, uh, right off the bat, what do you guys think of that, uh, and what do you think is going to happen? Mark said he didn't want to get in the prediction business. Uh, uh, I, I'm delighted that, that, first of all, the Supreme Court is going to take the Colorado case. I, I'm delighted that other states are looking at this issue. You know, even our state Supreme Court said, you know, we might revisit this, you know, at some later point in time. But uh, for the primary, you know, Michigan has a kind of unique legislation that says basically the parties can kind of do what they want. And, uh, you know, I saw the other day that the Michigan Republicans are looking perhaps not even to have a primary and just do it all by caucus. But I'm back to the, the question, John. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted that at least the U.S. Supreme Court is, is going to deal with this issue uh, one way or the other. And uh, I'm hoping that those uh, strict constructionists, those textualists, those originalists will do the right thing. Yeah, I would agree with Bob on those on those points, John. One of the reasons we brought the case, not only do we think Trump is disqualified, but this question needs to get resolved. It needs to get resolved now. Kicking a can down the road doesn't help anybody. We need certainty, whatever the court does. But I agree with Bob. I mean, I think the law is very clear here. The facts are very clear. There was a trial in Colorado. And after that trial, the judge said, yes, he committed, you know, he violated the 14th Amendment, Section 3. He was engaged in insurrection. And, you know, the, the main secretary of state reached the same conclusion and a number of other cases in the pipeline. So I'm glad the court took the case and I hope they do the right thing and disqualify Trump from the ballot. 
And I'm curious what you think will happen if they decide, okay, he committed insurrection. Would would the decision you think just apply to the state of Colorado or would they have to go nationwide? Well, I want to I want to be careful here. We'll have to see what the opinion says if they do the right thing. And then we may revisit what happened here in Michigan. As Bob pointed out, uh, the decisions here by the courts were only for the primary. Um, but if the court says, you know, the Supreme Court says he cannot be on the Colorado primary ballot, we will attempt to revisit that with the Michigan court system and whatever means are available to us. I mean, mm -hmm. the United States Supreme Court decision is binding nationwide. If they say he committed, violated the 14th Amendment, that doesn't just apply to Colorado. It applies to every state in the country. But Mark, if he's kicked off the ballot, could he still could his name still be written in on a primary ballot? Possible. I mean, these are all the kinds of things we have to speculate about. Um, but perhaps then, even if that's true, the votes aren't counted. I mean, if he's not qualified to be a candidate for president of the United States, why would you count the votes for such a person? We don't count the votes for such people now. If somebody had their name written in and they were underage or they weren't a U.S. citizen, we wouldn't count those write-in votes. We shouldn't count any write-in votes for Trump either. But this one actually, so let's say, and now we're looking at the Michigan GOP doing a close caucus primary election. Now, it wouldn't actually, whatever happens with this isn't going to impact a primary that a party hosts individually, will it? No, I mean, again, and I would be careful with nomenclature, if the Republican Party uses an internal process, and both parties have done that, we did it when I was party chair, through a caucus to select their delegates at convention, that's fine. But Trump does not have a right to be on a public ballot in this state. They can select their delegates however they want. They don't need to use the primary. We pointed that out all along, Samantha. And so, yeah, they can go forward with that, but Trump should not be on a Michigan ballot. One more quick question. I guess as you're watching the, the court wrestle with this, it always seems to come down to like uh, two or three or four questions. Obviously, one's going to be what is insurrection, right? What other questions will you be looking at as uh, how they how they wrestle with those? What questions do you want them to answer? Well, we saw the same set of questions raised all around the country, right? There's various, you know, is the presidency an office of the United States? When he was president, was he an officer of the United States? I, I agree with Bob LeBrand. I think all the answers to those are yes. You look at the definition of insurrection, as Bob pointed out, you take an originalist approach, a strict textualist approach, and you look back at the congressional debates and the language they used. It's very clear that, you know, you, you don't have to commit a crime. You don't have to pick up arms. And it's enough to do what Trump did to be considered engaging insurrection. So we'll be looking at all those, John, and they come up with a number of defenses as well. They said, well, this is a political question that the court shouldn't be deciding. This is precisely the kind of thing a court should decide. There are facts to be found and applied. There are legal questions to be answered. This is exactly what a court should be doing. But they're going to have to, the court's going to have to work through all the elements of Section 3 and then all these defenses that Trump has raised as to why it doesn't apply to him. Before we go, I kind of want to pivot back to redistricting, but with a twist, I want to ask about the political implications in the future of all of this. I've noticed a few Republican voices might try linking the commission's failures to Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson if she were ever to run for another office in the future, say that she was the one that supervised the hiring of these experts that led to the racial gerrymandering. Uh, do you think that political attempt will stick? Do you see it actually happening in some campaign literature? What are your thoughts? Look, they, they may try, Samantha, but Benson didn't hire those folks. She has no supervisory authority on this process. You know, she manages the process by which they get there. 
But then how they hold their meetings, and I know there's been discussion about the Open Meetings Act today, who they hire and fire, that's all up to them. And that cannot possibly be laid uh, on Benson. I, I think that's a frivolous and frankly ridiculous argument. Doesn't mean somebody won't try. Now, I also want to ask about other legislative races in the future. For example, if you have these suburban districts where Michigan politics can become quite the Wild West, they're going to be expensive to run in. Uh, do you think there could be a chance to win an election with the with the message of this incumbent won because the map was unconstitutional? How do you think that does in the court of public opinion? Again, I think voters focus on the economy and other more concrete issues. This is really inside baseball for the vast majority of people. Us, right? This is inside baseball. It's the kind of thing we do. The vast majority of voters don't care. They care about whether they're elect the, the person they elect is effective and what's going on in their own lives. So again, Samantha, I think in the big scheme of things, this doesn't mean anything to a, to a voter. What are your thoughts, Bob? Do we have any redistricting political winners and losers? I would agree with Mark that I don't think that this is going to be a deciding issue as to whether someone is going to vote for a Republican or a Democratic legislative candidate, with the possible exception of a, of a district that might be in, in the city of Detroit, and they feel that they had been disenfranchised. I think that's perhaps more important than, than basically what some voter maybe in Birmingham or Royal Oak or, or, or Warren may think. So, again, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, factors that will influence the outcome of legislative races in 2024, but uh, probably uh, redistricting is not going to be the number one issue. Well, Bob LeBrant and Mark Brewer, thank you so much for joining us on our redistricting roundtable of the MERS Monday podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. Yes, thank you very much for having us. us for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast is William Lawrence, a Lansing-based social movement organizer and the coordinator of the Michigan Rent is Too Damn High, uh, with endorsing organizations including the Michigan Student Power Association, the Detroit Homeless Union, the Fund My Future Coalition, and the undergraduate ACLU at the University of Michigan. Hey, William, how are you doing today? Doing well, Samantha. Thanks for having me. Last year, you all might have caught the Rent is Too Damn High group in early September at a rally attracting several hundred Michiganders onto the Capitol lawn. They made several demands like lifting the state's current preemption law, barring local governments from establishing their own rent control policies, and a proposed $1 billion appropriation for a housing-first approach to homelessness in Michigan, with investments covering rapid rehousing and supporting housing services. Uh, William, can you tell us a little bit more about the rent is too damn high backstory, why this coalition sort of bloomed last year. Uh, overall, just kind of give us a summary of who you all are. Yeah, so um, we were, I was part of a group of renters, mostly, you know, millennials and Gen Zers, but really including all ages in the Lansing area who've been organizing for the last several years because well, you already know the rent is too damn high and uh, it's really pinching all of us. And when the 
Democratic trifecta took office uh, in 2023, we shifted our attention to the state level because uh, a lot of the, you know, the spending capacity and also the regulatory authority to actually do something about these issues sits at the state level. So being as we were in Lansing, um, we thought we would turn our attention there. And then as the year went on, um, we started to uh, build more alliances and pick up some traction with people from all other parts of the state. So this became a statewide coalition. So just to confirm, it is a coalition. Is it a member group? What exactly is the dynamic of this group? So it's a coalition, and um, we've got now over 50 endorsing um, member organizations uh, around the state. And we're united around our points of unity to repeal the ban on rent control, uh, for social housing, for housing first, and for a renter's bill of rights. In 2023, what were some housing policies you saw the state legislature approve that the Michigan rent is too damn high believed was a step in the right direction? And what were some policies submitted to the governor's desk that maybe your coalition did not agree with? So there was a bill passed spearheaded by Representative Amos O'Neill that requires landlords to notify tenants if there is a potentially health hazardous issue at their facility. Uh, That sounds like a pretty low bar, but it's a positive step that it did pass. Um, uh, There was $150 million passed in the supplemental budget for housing development. Now that's positive, but then We kept hearing about it throughout the year. Uh, They were really proud of it. And the legislature, I would say, really rested on their laurels after passing that $150 million, when really that's just a drop in the bucket. And when it comes to housing, the funding we need is measured in billions with a B, um, not millions. Um, So there's still a lot of work to do. Um, I can't identify a counterproductive bill that did pass, but the problem we saw was really that both on the tenants' rights side and on the housing supply side, um, the legislature and the governor um, failed to give enough sustained attention to the issue. You know, I would really just love to hear a progressive grassroots perspective on this. I mean, right now there is a, how would I describe this? I would say a huge incentive for brownfield redevelopment, how to basically take brownfield sites and bring more housing into them, attract more housing developers, attract more construction. As an organization that's dedicated to tenant rights, I mean, what are you, what is your present day thought on the current state of incentives for housing developers? Yeah, so there was this tax increment financing bill that passed, um, which is designed to create more incentives for developers. And, um, you know, there's there's some good and bad to that. The the good is that it it, it will result in 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 more housing, including some more affordable housing getting built. But on the other hand, with this financing structure, we're 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 robbing from local tax revenue in the future in order to um, build this housing now. Um, so I'd say it's kind of a push overall on on that specific bill. It's going to create some new tools for developers, but really the problem with our model of uh, affordable housing provision is that it's all about throwing gobs of money at private developers, and it doesn't change the situation for renters, which is that the private rental market is, you know, renters get the short end of the stick every time. And we keep hearing from um, from legislators and, and from folks at MISHA who are, you know, are trying to do the right thing. Uh, the model that they're working with still is that in order to help renters, 
uh, you always have to help private developers even more. <laughs> and renters are rarely at the table when it comes to making these decisions. So uh, we could talk about that more with Mishta, but it's kind of a mixed bag with the, with the TIF financing. And just to pivot back, I mean, when you mentioned the O'Neill bill, that was one that your organization supported, right? Positive about yeah. Yeah, we, we we supported it. It, it wasn't one that um it, you know it wasn't one that we you know took initiative on at the outset. That kind of came to the legislature even shortly after our, our demonstration. And so, um, but yes, definitely um, feel positive about that. Before I pivot to my next question, I do want to say that when I was trying to type the rent is too damn high in my emails to you, my email kept on trying to remove the damn. <laughs> yeah, we noticed that actually that was something we were proud of is that uh, we noticed that the press were not uh, including local Lansing TV. were not um, saying our name um, for months and months and months leading up to the demonstration. And then after we had all of those signs up on the Capitol lawn. I, I guess we broke the seal and uh, there were some revised editorial standards and uh, the press started saying our name. Yeah, destigmatize the word damn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, 2023. Hey, you know, the governor did it in 2018 with fixing the damn road. So if she could do it, we certainly felt like we could. Now, I really want to know how your coalition feels about the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. Uh, do grassroots housing advocates trust Mischa's performance and commitment to making housing more available? Or do you potentially have some less favorable views on the executive management over housing access? Look, I'd say we'd love to have a stronger relationship with Mishta. They're, they're doing a lot of work with their statewide housing plan to try to wrap their arms around this problem. And they're doing a lot of work to engage stakeholders around the state. But as I mentioned, in the housing policy world, the conversation is still far too focused on developers and the needs of developers. Renters just are not at the table. So when they make policy, MISHDA and the legislature often act as if the only way to help renters is to throw gobs of money at private developers, which may in some cases incentivize more housing but it doesn't change the fact that renters are taken advantage of by design in the private rental market. Um, landlords have a unilateral right to raise rents, to push people out, to set all the terms of the rental contract. And there are other solutions available um, like social housing, which we are advocating. And, and that's the sort of thing we'd like to see uh, Mishta get interested in. I know one of your demands is a renter's bill of rights. What what exactly what exactly is that? Uh, so it includes things like um, right to counsel for eviction proceedings. Um, your listeners surely know that uh, when it comes to criminal cases, we consider it a fundamental right to have uh, an attorney. So you get a court appointed attorney if you can't afford one yourself. But um, every single day, um, renters go into eviction court with no legal representation whatsoever. And this is just another way that that fundamental power imbalance between tenants and landlords shows up. So this bill, um, which has been passed in other states and other major cities, um, would create a right to representation in eviction court. Another um, really important bill that um, we're advocating for is called Fair Chance Access to Housing for Returning Citizens, which has been sponsored by Representative A. Bayash. Uh, and championed by a group called Nation Outside, which is an organization that's a member of our coalition uh, that uh, advocate for returning citizens, people with criminal records. Uh, and uh, really there's legalized discrimination against people with criminal records uh, in the rental housing market. And this bill would 
remove that legalized discrimination, give those people fair chance access to housing. There's also bills that would, uh, under the Renters' Bill of Rights, that would expunge eviction records. Again, similarly to how we have expungement available um, for people's criminal records so that they can have a clean slate moving forward. Things like mandating relocation assistance funding for tenants in cases where their building is red tagged, often through zero fault of their own. Landlord didn't keep the place up. Now it's red tagged. And usually the burden of that falls on the tenants, but this would mandate that there's assistance provided for them to be able to relocate. And there's other bills as well included under the banner of the Renters' Bill of Rights. But really, it's a it's a variety of bills that are intended to um, protect renters and hold bad landlords accountable. Additionally, your coalition calls for a $4 billion investment into social housing for the fiscal year of 2025. What exactly is social housing and why do you believe it will improve the quality of life in Michigan? Social housing is... Uh, I think a concept that people are a little less familiar with, and I'm really excited to get to talk to uh, talk about it. It is a public option for rental housing. And this is necessary in order for housing to be a human right in our state. So 28% of Michigan households are renters, but our housing policy really is not designed to offer housing security for renters. And let me explain what I mean by this. If you're a renter, you know that you're always at risk of getting priced out or pushed out of your current rental. And you also don't have any confidence that you'll be able to find another affordable rental in the future. And this is what I mean by housing insecurity. When you're housing insecure, you you can't build a life in the same way. You can't make plans and you constantly carry that risk of displacement and rising costs and worry about where your housing is going to come from in the future. Now, our policymakers, they've said for decades, the solution to housing insecurity is homeownership. We should expand homeownership. And we say, okay, that's that's well and good. But are the 28% of our population, that's around 3 million people, who are renters, all going to become homeowners? No, they are not. You might reduce that number, but not by that much. Not everybody wants to become a homeowner. Uh, many people simply are never going to be able to afford it. No matter how much money we throw at incentivizing homeownership, which is already a lot, and that's the main way that we spend money on housing uh, uh, through politics is on incentivizing homeownership. So if we believe that housing security is a human right, we need to be able to offer housing security for renters, not just for homeowners. And that is something that the private rental market structurally cannot do because private rental profits depend on their ability to hike rents and push people out. So social housing that we want to see built is mixed income. It has units available at different price points. It's rent stabilized permanently. And these are high quality community places that anybody from very poor people to upper middle income people can be proud and happy to live in. And without getting into all the wonky details of why this is possible, which goes a lot into the ability of the public sector to access finance on different terms than private landlords are able to do, um, this is very possible, uh, and it's been demonstrated in other states. I think, and we talked a bit about incentives for developers within our state's present-day system, and I have a question that is going to be a bit wonky, but how do you establish a happy middle, a happy, a happy medium? Because here, 
at the end of the day, Mishra says that there is a substantial shortage in available units. You need new developers to come into the state to construct these properties. Uh, you need participation in the market. But then you also have a coalition like yours that is demanding for a more intensified, improved focus on tenants. Where Where is the middle ground where you can imagine both forces and both parties meeting at? Well, we absolutely, uh, you know, like I said, there's in our coalition's demands, there's really um, uh, two sides to it. There's the tenants' rights side and there's the housing supply side. And we need both. You're not going to address the challenge without either one. And so, you know, we're not proposing to drive private landlords or private developers out of the rental market. Uh, we want to supplement that with uh, publicly owned, publicly funded social housing, as I was just describing. They can kind of set a floor on the market in terms of conditions and also standards and, and really raise the floor of uh, what we learn to expect in terms of um, what is available to renters on the housing supply side. And as I mentioned, we can actually um, do this because of uh, the public access to, to different financing tools. Um, we can deliver deeper affordability through social housing than the private rental market is capable of doing without sacrificing on quality. Because in addition to you know, the rising costs of building um, which you know people are, are familiar with, uh, the biggest expense when it comes to building rental housing in the private market is the cost of capital. And that means that people are having to raise money from private equity funding um, you know that is often coming from from out of state and, and who knows where. And those investors are demanding windfall profits on their housing developments. They, they don't see renters as people who need a home. They see renters as uh, they see housing developments as you know uh, big boxes from which they can extract windfall profits, and that's why you know even in the context of mixed income or cross subsidized housing, uh, it's just very difficult to deliver deep affordability, which is why Mischa is thinking about throwing more and more money at these private developers in order to incentivize them to. To, to do so, it's all about making it profitable for them. But when you build it in the public sector, it, it doesn't have to be profitable. It just has to break even. And that, that's one of the advantages of doing things through the public sector. I do want to ask, so speaking either for yourself or on behalf of your coalition, what is the progressive grassroots perspective on the governor's Growing Michigan Together Council and its final report? Well, speaking personally, you know, I, I grew up in East Lansing, um, and then uh, moved back to the Lansing area from out of state in 2017. Um, and, and at that time, uh, you know, the what I found myself and uh, what I heard other people say about Lansing was that, you know, it was an affordable place to live. At that time, you could get a, a decent rental for you know, maybe between $600 and $800 in a lot of cases and have it be, you know, a high quality place you'd actually want to live in. And nobody is saying that about Lansing anymore. I know they're not saying about many other places in the state. So I'd say it's it's really no surprise that millennials and Gen Zers are choosing to live in other states um, rather than Michigan. Unfortunately, we want affordable, vibrant cities to live in. That requires affordable housing, and it requires also mass transit, two areas where Michigan severely lacks and has failed to invest for many decades. I love it here. I'm planning to grow old here. I want more people my age to live here and grow old here, but it can be a tough sell. 
when I'm talking to my friends who have left the state and are contemplating coming back. So yes, I think it's it's evident that you know social housing and tenants' rights are a big part of the solution to this you know so-called um, population crisis. And I hope the governor and legislature will will take that report seriously because that's what they say as well. Now, and where did you where did you go away to after growing up in East Lansing, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I, I'm. Um, I ended up uh, doing my college uh, in the Philadelphia area. And then um, lived in Philadelphia for for several years after my graduation. So I, I did seven or eight years in the Philly region, and then you know I thought about moving somewhere else on the East Coast, New York or something like that. But I, I don't know. I decided that the Midwest was for me, and Great Lakes State was for me, and I you know I I don't, I don't regret that at all. But we do have some issues that need to get dealt with. I mean, you also see big cities where. I'm going to make the observation that the cost of living is substantially higher than what it would be in the Midwest. And mm-hmm. you still see population attraction and population growth. And And a question is, I think, isn't it the fact that would you dare say that people that have the means to do are willing to pay more for housing as long as they have the quality of life that matches up with it? I think that's true to an extent. I also think that our incomes uh, here in Michigan are are much lower than what a, a median income for you know a young professional would be in a big East Coast city. So I, I do think that people are willing to pay more um, for more amenities. But people see new apartments going up in in Lansing, and the base rent is seventeen hundred dollars, and they just think. Lansing, Lansing is not the sort of city that has has seventeen hundred dollar type of amenities, and so uh, I I agree with your point to an ex, to an extent, but I wouldn't want to take it too far because there are other people who are you know just severely cost burdened and 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 need places that are um, you know closer to the thousand dollar mark or below. And a disclaimer: we are not Lansing haters on this podcast. Certainly not. Certainly not. Although, yeah, certainly not. Keep us, keep us out of that conversation. Uh, but yeah. you know, I, I, I think I also do. While I kind of have you on here as we approach near the end of our interview, I want to ask about some more policies. Uh, the House has not touched legislation from the Senate to formally prohibit landlords in Michigan from rejecting potential tenants because they receive disability benefits or rent paying assistance from the Federal Housing Choice Voucher Program. Uh, why do you think that is? Why it was not moved in 2023? So I can't speak authoritatively about uh, the behind the scenes talks on that bill in particular. But what I can say is that the House Housing Subcommittee, to which we are paying very close attention, really underperformed in 2023 um, in the sense that it simply didn't get around to lots of quality bills that were in its purview. Um, it was canceling hearings. There were just lots of bills that just didn't get heard at all. Uh, and that includes one of our top priorities as a coalition, which is to repeal the statewide ban on municipal rent control policies. So why was this? And part of it is just competing priorities in a, a short session. And we know this session was foreshortened. Um, but we also know that the landlord lobby groups have been very active in the last year. Um, after our rent is too damn high demonstration in September, which was the largest gathering of organized tenants in Michigan in decades, um, one official from a landlord association said that they were as nervous as they had ever been about the political climate. And that was a quote that showed up in the press. So they've certainly been going into overdrive after that to gum up the works and sow doubt among 
uh, Democratic as well as Republican lawmakers. So it's going to take more initiative and focus on this issue from Democratic leadership that starts with the governor, um, it includes Senate and House leadership to overcome these corporate interests. And I, I would suspect that that is um, a big reason why many of these bills um, kind of stalled out in the last session. It seems that right now you're looking at over $5 billion worth in appropriation requests for the fiscal year 2025. Now, there is a lot of federal money that isn't going to be there this budget making season. What is the battle plan? Uh, and what are some, I mean, are you willing to settle on a lower appropriation? Do you believe that your demands are realistic? What What are kind of your thoughts going into the budget making season? Yeah, look, we're clear on um, the the prospects and expectations for how this budget season is going to work, especially now that the, the the surplus that existed a year ago has um, been spent down, uh, including on a lot of um, corporate subsidies, by the way. But that's another conversation. We're looking at getting a social housing pilot bill um, or study bill introduced um, that would be a, a much smaller amount, but to continue this conversation about social housing and get some more people at MISHTA looking at it seriously. So that's something we're going to be working on hard in the first quarter. But, you know, our, our requests are what they are because it's important for uh, us to start not with what is considered politically possible now, but what is necessary um, for renters in order to actually solve this housing crisis. If it takes billions with a B to build the amount of housing that we need, it takes a billion or so to deliver the housing first services to people experience homelessness that is actually going to solve and end homelessness. We can't water down those numbers just because uh, of you know what people say in Lansing about the budget. We need to, our education is first and foremost educational about the scale of this crisis. And that means people need to understand how big it is, how severe the situation is for renters and uh, what kind of spending is actually going to be required, um, whether it's this year, next year, over the next decade, uh, in order to solve it. Thank you so much, William Lawrence, a Lansing-based social movement organizer and the coordinator of the Michigan Rent is Too Damn High group. Uh, and you're also the host of your own podcast. I'm not sure if you want to give it a little shout out before we go. Yeah, that's that's, that's right. I produce them um, with uh, Convergence Magazine, which is a magazine for radical insights about um, social movement politics and strategy. Uh, I produced the uh, Hegemonicon podcast, which is an investigation into the workings of power. And uh, it's it's a good opportunity to ask some really big picture questions about where the organized left is going across the country. Um, so I hope your listeners will check it out. It's called the Hegemonicon. for our final segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Jennifer Peacock, the present-day policy director for the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Here's some background information for our listeners today. From October 2020 through September 2021, young Michiganders from 10 to 16 years old accounted for more than 4,600 juvenile arrests in less than one year. 
Before exiting 2023, the governor signed multiple bills to align Michigan with recommendations from the Michigan Task Force on Juvenile Justice Reform, which submitted a report in summer 2022 that called for more funding for community-based programs, a statewide juvenile public defense system, and more diversion opportunities for youths who do not present a serious public safety risk. Uh, hello, Jennifer. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I also feel, if you're fine with me sharing this, for the sake of transparency to our listeners, <laughs> you are also a gate gatekeeper of my college persona because you used to be my alternative break leader back in college. Yes, we both went to CMU. Fire up forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great to have you on and to be talking to you. And my earliest question for you, Jennifer, is there anything that separates Michigan from other states when it comes to juvenile crime issues, both before these reforms were signed into law and now after? You know, I think juvenile justice at large across the country, I would say, face some similar challenges, right? You know, a lot of states, we have an over-reliance on detention, things like out-of-home placement. Um, and I, But then within this kind of spectrum of juvenile justice, we're all at different levels and layers, right? And we, we are unique in the sense that we have a decentralized system. So that means across our state, all these different counties are running kind of their own juvenile justice systems. I'm sure some rural counties might merge together and share resources. But with that kind of broad and kind of varied, we'll say, uh, juvenile justice system, that poses a unique challenge when we're talking about policy and reform and ensuring that these changes can work in different contexts. And I would say after the reform, I think our the child care fund and that reform that just happened is truly something I firmly believe other states are going to study and model after, right? This natural incentive of community-based care through this reimbursement rate change of giving those counties a 75% reimbursement rate and a 50% for out-of-home placement, I think is a game changer while also tying the use of best practices to limit that, to kind of, I don't want to say limit, um, but to really try to make sure we are providing youth with the correct and appropriate services to prevent that over-reliance on detention. So for me, I think the big, big kind of after that just kind of really pushed us ahead is, is that child care fund and, of course, the elimination of juvenile court debt. I want to provide some background information, even more background Michigan. In 2023, the package that we're talking about, the large slate of juvenile justice reform bills, these measures included expanding early expanding yearly reimbursements to counties from the child care fund from 50% to 75% for community-based juvenile justice services, requiring county governments to invest in risk screenings and assessments in order to access the larger reimbursements, and rebranding the Office of the Children's Ombudsman to the Office of the Child Advocate. In 2024, though, what does the Michigan Center for Youth Justice project to be the earliest impacts of these reforms? Reforms. Yeah, so so many of these reforms do have an effective date of October 1st of this year. So I would say a good chunk of 2024 
um, is really going to be preparing for implementation. And so for me personally, I do think, again, I don't mean to keep going back to the childcare fund. But I'm just so excited that that happened. Um, I, I think it really shifted how our state wants to focus on rehabilitation, right? We just stated that we are going to invest in community-based services. And I think, I think we can really expect counties to have more resources to plan, collaborate, and again, be strategic with those resources as we head into 2024. Um, and so I think, honestly, immediately, we just saw this huge change of the conversation just shifted, and it shifted for the better, in, in my opinion, um, which is really exciting to see. What is your organization's relationship like with local governments? I would say it varies. We've been really fortunate to partner with different counties and assist in kind of you know, changes have to be done at the local level, right? At MCYJ, we want to be that supporting partner and in, in helping counties who want to reimagine or change how they do things. And we, we want to assist in that, right? So we've gotten to partner with a lot of different counties and support everything from maybe it's having conversations about diversion, maybe it's facilitating community conversations so that the court can really hear from kids and families. Um, and we also one that I always love is we did get to partner with Macomb County as they went forward and evaluating if they should eliminate juvenile court debt. And that was a really great example of just counties really wanting to change and really dig into the meat of this data and what they had and what they know what what they knew to be true and was that effective or not and really evaluating that truth. And it was a great partnership. As a reporter, if I were to summarize the purpose of this legislation that will become effective in the beginning of October. I mean, is the purpose really about less detention and more holistic support? No. And I, I, I feel cautious using the word holistic. I think everyone likes to use that word for so many different things. <laughs> you know, I kind of think it really boils down to honestly adequately resourcing our counties to expand that continuum of care. You know, de detention in the state of Michigan, I think long-term we would, you know, we being the MCYJ perspective, it's something that our counties can easily fall into being reliant on without using the proper tools. And so for me, it's, I view the legislation as how do we build a floor of care? How do we ensure that we set baseline standards of care, right? Because again, it's decentralized. So how do we ensure that kids who, maybe commit the same offense across different counties are receiving fair, equitable treatment. And every kid should have access to alternatives to detention because a county might be more rural. Like they deserve and should have equitable access to those community-based services. And so for me, that it really boils down to build that floor while also allowing for local flexibility and innovation um, and really still allowing at the end of the day, courts do have that leadership role and they have that judgment to play in the in the work. The task for recommendations that are really made that these bills originate from, uh, they use this they use this term uh, more diversion opportunities for youths who do not present a serious public safety risk, uh, do not present a public safety risk. What is a public safety risk when we're talking about a youth? I don't necessarily want to start naming offenses because I think con that would strip away context to what's happening with the child. But I, I will say you know, research shows that there is a spectrum of young people's offenses, right? Statistically, kids who might become justice involved, a majority of which after their first offense, they're not going to repeat again, right? Low level offenses, low risk, youth who commit more serious offenses. Um, they, when matched with the appropriate services, they do really, really well, right? When they get access to treatment, rehabilitation, 
Whereas those low risk kids, if they come into contact with too much of the court, it can actually have the opposite effect. And so when we're talking about things like public safety risks, that's really where we are encouraging through this legislation, the, the use of those risk screening tools to really, and also mental health assessments, which I think is really key in this conversation, to really get that full picture of the child to then match the appropriate services, to then identify the kind of likelihood of recidivism or the needs that they might have. Okay, I want to talk about implementation because it seems that the next 10 months is all going to be about preparing county governments for implementation. Uh, what resources are available? Uh, and also when it comes to risk assessment, community service providers, uh, they now have to rapidly adapt to these changes. Uh, what type of opportunities and resources are available for all of these groups? Yeah, when it comes to supporting the work, there's actually a lot happening at the state and local level. And those conversations, it's been really cool. They've been happening for a while. And so there are several working groups occurring uh, to support counties, primarily managed by MDHHS and the state court administrative office. And they'll they'll really be essential for assisting uh, our communities to prepare for the fall. Now, what are some new forms of community-based juvenile justice programs that your organization has noticed? Uh, when it comes to intervention and solutions, what do you hope are some 2024 trends? You know, I, I will say, I just read, actually, this was a good timing of this question. So Macomb County Juvenile Division actually had a piece in the Macomb Daily recently that highlighted how through the child care fund, they wanted to expand evening and weekend programming to target those kids who have that downtime, right? Keep them engaged. Um, and they're also talking about how they can possibly add things like academic support, family therapy, recreational activities. Um, and again, those are all really big picture services. And I think that's just so fantastic and such a good use of their child care fund dollars. Um, and when it comes to trends, I just, oh, it's the community-based services. I keep saying that word, but that's really important that kids can stay local and, and particularly that mental health infrastructure. So I love personally to see like more investment, also more collaboration, right? So how can counties effectively share their resources, whether that's through telehealth, what does that look like and how does that innovation come to be? Um, just so that we can more effectively meet kids' needs and, and the whole child and their family. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're personally seeing in terms of the ratio for morale? Are there more local governments that are super excited about this? Are there still a few parties that are a bit cautious or a bit concerned? I think the child care fund, I keep hailing that, but that is getting people so, so excited because historically JJ has just been underinvested in. Um, and so I think that alone has really rallied folks. And, and I am and I'm very empathetic to folks who change is overwhelming and changes a lot. So I think that a lot of people knew this was coming because of the report. And I think the report was really essential to get us all on the same page. But I think it's it really is going to vary county by county and, and their own personal philosophy of juvenile justice. Is there a fear at all, though, that with the child care fund, you're excited about now there's going to be more money for juvenile justice. But is the child care fund vulnerable to the ebbs and flows of the economy? Are you ever nervous about the fund potentially being diluted and what happens now? Yeah, that's a totally valid and fair question. It all, I almost view it as like an upfront cost, right? So like detention in general is much, much more costly to operate than something like a community-based program, a workforce development program, something like that. And so in you can almost view all of these bills as working in tandem. And so because now we're implementing risk screening tools come fall, in theory, we'll be able to catch those low-risk kids 
divert them away from detention because we just expanded diversion, right? Which again, much more cost effective. And so in theory, you should be seeing this kind of what I hope, this is me talking personally, um, and others might disagree, but when we kind of lower this reliance on detention, which is much more costly and should only be used in the most significant, you know, those public safety risk contexts, I think we're going to ultimately see almost the savings, right? Because again, it's just much more costly, um, cost effective, excuse me, to operate these local programs that counties can pitch more money in. So I think I think it's fair, like any other budget item, we're always, you know, especially for those folks listening who have to advocate for budgets, everything can sometimes feel vulnerable. Um, but at the end of the day, I think once we see how this plays out long term and, and folks research the positive cost saving effects of this, I think that will kind of reinforce and protect it. The Michigan Center for Youth Justice worked on now signed legislation prohibiting courts from charging juveniles or their guardians with non-restitution fees affiliated with their case. Uh, what did some of these non-restitution fees include? Yeah, so just just a couple because it was it was a solid list of them. It included things like late fees and penalties, costs associated with placement in residential facilities, uh, fees or costs associated with consent calendar and eliminating uh, attorney fees for court-appointed attorneys. Opposition to these bills question if they would create a lack of accountability if too many costs were waived. Why didn't your group share that type of sentiment? You know, we, we've long been advocating for this, and, and the research is just very consistent. Juvenile court debt actually undermines that rehabilita rehabilitative intent of the system, right? So it does far more harm, including increased recidivism, right? Which we all don't want. And when, when folks talk about this lack of accountability, you know, even though Michigan, we just joined many other states who are also doing the same work, kids still have to face consequences for their actions, right? So kids who make mistakes will still have to follow through on what is expected of them by the courts. Maybe that's community service, Maybe that's multi-systemic family therapy or a diversion program. Maybe it's anger management. Um, and, and maybe a child, unfortunately, might need to face the most significant consequence. And maybe that's a placement in a residential facility for more intensive treatment. Like there is just so many other metrics of accountability and personal growth that fines and fees truthfully cannot capture. And so we want youth to be able to focus on their treatment. We want them to reach those outlined goals. We want them to feel connected and supported to their community, to be able to integrate back into their community without this looming mounting pressure of debt that can really strain a family that's already potentially in crisis. It seems that a lot of the things you're mentioning specifically, what, what is it? The something family therapy, the multi, what is the word that I'm missing? Oh, multi-systemic family therapy. It's it's kind of, not to use your word, the word that we're all hesitant, but holistic, that kind of really work bringing the whole family together to, to work together and through those issues. Now, it seems that there is going to be a need for some mental health professionals for all of this to come to fruition. What is the what is the workforce need looking like right now? I know that there's been talk about there being mental health worker shortages. Uh, is there actually enough professionals to make all of these services come true? You know, that that's a question that I can't necessarily peg down in a black and white. Yes, I, it's just so varied by your county. Right. I think I think rural counties might have a, a more challenging time. And that's why some are are doing really innovative things through telehealth. Um, and I think it, it's also as, as just by and large, most industries are being hit by staffing shortages in the mental health field. And I think that that is a very real challenge. 
Now, I know that your organization is not a political one, but do you personally ever get concerned about juvenile justice subjects being subjected to being uh, juvenile justice subjects being politicized in an election year? Uh, Do you think some new juvenile justice policies, local, state level or federal, might be blocked in 2024 because of political law and order rhetoric? Oh, you know, I think I think juvenile justice is very susceptible susceptible to narrative change, and I of course I find that concerning. Um, you can also really see it play out in the national discourse too. Um, I, I think we can also like look at how detrimental that super predator myth of the 1990s was, particularly for youth of color. Um, and I think, and this is me speaking, you know, personally political parties are very strategic about what legislation they will run and won't run. And they have to, they have to play smart given how high stakes Michigan is. But our job like at MCYJ is to keep this issue above that political fray, right? Because we know how essential this work is to, and like so many others do. Uh, these kids are the future of Michigan and, and we want to keep these kids in our state and contributing to our communities. We want them to become healthy, happy adults. Uh, public safety discourse is very powerful, especially when it comes to youth. So I want to be hopeful that we can continue doing really great work because, again, there was a solid amount of recommendations in that in that task force report and beyond. But I'm very aware of the context we're facing. <laughs> Seems that detention, incarceration for older individuals in Michigan. I mean, that's often associated with accountability. We all know the old mm-hmm. phrase, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. <laughs> I, I guess I, I guess how do you how do you navigate those conversations? Because I think that there could be individuals who hear the term diversion, hear the term mm-hmm. uh, ways to basically redirect someone from detention. I, how do you how do you deal with people who question if there's a lack of accountability? I really try to take the time to teach people the difference between punishment and accountability. Those are two very different things. And sometimes I think, people get them confused or, or, or use them interchangeably and they're not. And so it, it's really about sitting down with folks and having genuine conversations of and educating again, because Michigan's so decentralized and in our in our JJ system and it functions very differently from the adult system. And so it really comes down to educating folks on, no, this is all the different pathways kids can end up. This is how much it varies. This is how the kind of spectrum of involvement of the court and what's eligible to them. And at the end of the day, kids still have to take account of, even though all these changes just happened and it's super exciting, kids will still have to take accountability and accountability fosters personal growth. Punishment, honestly, the research is there, not that effective. So I think that's kind of how I try to lead those conversations. I do have one final question, though. The legislature did leave one juvenile justice bill behind that was not signed in 2023. It's House Bill 4630 to expand the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission to include an attorney with experience defending youth. Uh, What is the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission and why does this reform matter? Yeah, the MIDC works to ensure state's public defense system is fair, cost-effective, and constitutional while protecting public safety and accountability. So the, the JJ task force recommended that the MIDC's mandate expand to include the development and oversight and compliance with youth defense standards across those local systems. Um, and it's a, it's a constitutional right, right, to, to, a, to a defense. Um, and so it's so essential because, again, going back to that task force report, 
we don't have a centralized structure or minimal standards, resources, supports for juvenile public defense statewide. And the lack of uh, statewide funding for juvenile defense cause really big variations in local systems to even accessing trained and qualified defenders and when it's even available. And so when we're, we're talking about young people navigating a very complex system, that defense is absolute, that counsel is absolutely everything. Jen, it was so great to see you this morning and to talk with you today. Everybody, that is Jennifer Peacock, the policy director for the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Uh, now, now that it's 2024, I know that you said that your organization is going to be dealing a lot with education for the implementation of all of this. It has to get done by October 1st. Uh, is there going to be any new bills that you might be advocating for this year? Anything, anything brand new? You know, we're still, I'm still having conversations with some partners because we're all also very aware that we we did just have a significant overhaul and there's a lot of, you know, policy is great, but the implementation is where half, you know, a good chunk of the work starts. And so, so we're still having conversations to be candid. There are some bills that we are, we are hearing might be introduced that we want to directly support potentially, and particularly in the school justice framework. Um, so we're still exploring a lot of those conversations and a lot of representatives are having early conversations with us because uh, even they're still kind of setting some of their agenda. So we'll have to see a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Peacock with the MCYJ. Thank you for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks for having me. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast in terms of interviews. Of course, today's episode is being released Monday following a special January 6th meeting featuring 45 members of the state's Republican Party, where Chair Christina Caramo was removed 40 to 5 through a secret ballot vote. However, because of claims that the meeting was not held within the party's bylaws, Michigan GOP Chair Caramo is saying that she remains chair of the party and the meeting was unlawful. Just some news to think about this week. But of course, as we wrap up here, uh, I want to give tremendous thanks to elections attorney Mark Brewer and retired political action executive Bob LeBrant for participating in our roundtable conversation. Additionally, thank you to William Lawrence of the Rent is Too Damn High Coalition here in Michigan and Jennifer Peacock of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Additionally, thank you to MERS editor Kyle Malin, our publisher and the boss John Rurank, and our administrative reporter Andrew Miniger. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemus. Thanks to him for putting this and all of our audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. She's a tree.